0: Welcome, one and all, to a new episode of my RPG Podcast. Today's guest is Bill Allen. Bill is a YouTube content creator. He's a musician, an educator, and a long-term RPG fan who's best known for his D&D with High Schoolers series, amongst other things. Today we get to talk about what it takes to kind of create that content on a series I like to call We'll Do It Live, talking about streaming RPGs and posting them on the internet. Enjoy this episode. Welcome one and all to a new episode of my RPG Podcast. Today we're starting a series I like to call Let's Do It Live. It's going to be about live streaming or putting up your RPG games online. And who better to start with than our friend Bill Allen. Bill, will you please introduce yourself? Hey, well,
1: my name is Bill Allen. I um, have been playing role-playing games since about 1978. Um, my older brother taught me how to play D&D. When I was, I don't know if I was in preschool or kindergarten, but basically before I could really read very well or write. And I have loved role-playing games ever since. Um, my That same older brother, coincidentally, also recruited me to help out with different video projects that he would make with his friends in the 80s. I was kind of like his production assistant who didn't get paid at all, and I would carry equipment around or the camera bag or tapes or whatever, and just help out, um, which led me into enjoying making videos with my friends, you know, little short movies and stuff like that. Uh, Video was kind of one hobby that I enjoyed. Role-playing games was another. Much later in my life, uh, after a whole career in film and television um, and a significant amount of time as a teacher... I decided to kind of combine those things, and that only came up really recently within this last year.
0: Yeah, and I can't wait to kind of jump into that. like Before we get to there, let's kind of return to what you mentioned was the origins there, starting in, I believe, the late 70s. That's a great time to start. It's kind of uh, near the very, very beginning. Was that kind of helped by the fact that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm picking up a northern accent there. Are you possibly from Wisconsin? Is that right?
1: Uh, Chicago. All my life. Chicago.
0: Yep. All right, close enough. But G- Gygax wasn't too far away. Uh, as, as we all know, kind of the Midwest is where Gary Gygax and this whole kind of wave of the RPGs started.
1: Yeah. Coincidentally, I had two different uh, family members, an aunt on my mom's side and an aunt on my dad's side, who had lake houses around Lake Geneva. Uh, so, so Lake Geneva and nearby uh, East Troy, um, Delavan, all those little towns right around where TSR was, You know, I was up there three times, four times a summer and never, (laughs) for whatever reason, I never made the pilgrimage to the Holy Land, so to speak. I never had a chance to uh, go and check out, you know, Gygax's house or Horticultural Hall or any of those kind of uh, featured places from, you know, the original TSR days or the early Gen Con days.
0: Yeah, so what was the game like back then when you started? Like, uh, were you guys... Doing any RPing or was it mostly like raiding and looting? What was up?
1: You know, in the early days, I mean, we were, we were little kids. So, it, you know, my brother taught me how to play. He would DM a few games here and there. And he even DMed some games for, for me and my friends. And not just d d some of the other early Star uh, uh, TSR games like Star Frontiers and um, Gamma World, Marvel superheroes that, you know, came out in the early 80s. So, you know, that that was mostly just adventures. You know, I don't want to say murder hobos, but, you know, basically we were a bunch of kids who were looking for the adventure, you know, kill the monster, get the treasure, your basic stuff. But I will say that probably by the mid-80s, we we evolved from just, you know, kind of what I would call the serial adventure stuff to actual campaigns where there was an ongoing storyline and recurring npcs and stuff like that so as i think it it came down to as we grew up the game our game grew up as well
0: yeah that's actually a a something i've heard multiple times now from people whereas maybe your introduction is is that of just like oh this is really cool and i get to play an awesome badass guy who can hack and slash or who can cast spells and incinerate legions of foes and as you get a little bit older you start to maybe change the way you make decisions as to like character creation and stuff like that more, less away from maybe min maxing and more towards like well this is something interesting and I've never done before or this is a, I wonder how, what it would be like to play something you know opposite gender or opposite mentality alignment etc cetera, etc cetera, like that so it looks like you guys had a similar situation
1: yeah and I would say again I'd credit my brother Jeff too because as we got older he he built he took the game star frontiers and made it amazing because he started creating his own original com- content and not just like, you know, a couple NPCs here and there. I mean, he had whole worlds, he had corporations. It, it almost resembled what like Jordan Weissman and Fossa were doing with shadow run. But before that even really kicked, like he had the whole intergalactic corporate, Government structure thing happening with ongoing storylines for us to play in. So, you know, even as like tweens, we were kind of starting to experience these more intricate campaigns, um, which even led beyond that to other games. He he ran Twilight 2000 uh, for us, which was sort of a gritty, realistic post-apocalyptic military experience that brought in the strategy element, but also a lot of like role playing. So. Yeah, there, there were some of those experiences in the 80s that that kind of helped us grow as, as players and game masters and storytellers. But really, if you want to hit on the nut of what really changed everything, it was in the early 90s when we started playing White Wolf games. Uh, Vampire the Masquerade, Mage, Werewolf, that kind of stuff. And that, that really changed how we looked at games completely.
0: Yeah, and it's funny that you mentioned the thing about uh, just starting to create your own campaigns and settings and world stuff. There's a, a little behind the scenes here for anybody listening to the podcast. I actually knock out a couple ahead of time and drop them later. I have a previously recorded episode, which by now you guys will be able to access, where I, was ta- I, I ran a poll with a, with a good number of people. And I found out that something like 40% of all people do completely homebrewed settings and worlds without any sort of published resources as a reference. And then another 40% in my, my study said they do homebrewed worlds with obviously using like of adventures and whatnot for supplements. So despite the fact that we all have this plethora of material and, uh, published, uh, access uh, to any of this stuff from all over the decades, the vast majority of people, when they start playing RPGs, just want to make it up on their own.
1: I would, I would say that I, I agree with that, um, observation certainly, or that, that, those numbers based on what I've seen and experienced over my life in gaming, a good portion of people run modules or run material from source books. And I, I don't personally have a problem with playing in those games. I will say that I typically find they're not as engaging though, as playing in someone's original content. And, and, and then on the flip side, as a game master and a DM, I have very strong feelings about that stuff. I've, I've never run a module. I've never run an adventure from a published source book. And it's, it's because, it's not because I don't like those things. I've played in them. But in terms of running them, what makes me excited about being a DM or a GM is the world building, creating the environments, creating my own adventures, creating my own NPCs. And, and, and to me, that's the best part about being the boss of the game is, is you get to make all these cool things for people to experience in the game. And that, that's what makes it enjoyable and, and challenging and fun for me. I like to challenge myself with the creation of a world.
0: Yeah, definitely in the greens here. But let's go back. So you mentioned now you're getting into White Wolf Vampire Mage, and that's a turning point for you. So what was that game like and what was that experience like and how different was that in comparison to what you had before as in your kind of progression through the RPGs?
1: Well, I think we played just about every TSR game that was out there and e- even, you know, other game companies material um but there was something about the way that White Wolf approached role-playing games that really brought the R-O-L-E into it. You're playing a role. The person that's running the game is not a referee like a strategy game. They're not a dungeon master. Like for d d they're not a game master. The title they used was Storyteller, and that was a it seems so simple now, as I look back on it. But it was a profound, profound creation. They made a game where you could immerse yourself in this this world, this alternate world. And it wasn't about how much experience you got per kill. It wasn't about getting treasure. It wasn't about. It was about being this other identity, and it was about interacting with these other people who had a similar shared mixed blessing slash curse of being a vampire or the challenge of surviving as an awakened mage in a world that doesn't believe in magic. It was, it was such a profoundly different role-playing experience than any other game we'd played up until that point. And it opened our eyes uh, about how to really have a vibrant, interactive storytelling experience. It wasn't just running one game after another and grinding away. It was about really immersing yourself in this world and in these characters. It was deep. It was deep. And we applied that just, and this is coincidental, but at that same time we were interested in Lovecraft. And we played um, Call of Cthulhu, Chaosium's Call of Cthulhu, like a couple different editions of it. And uh, we, we kind of brought that same mentality to that game as well, where we, we just went really deep with you know, role-playing and character development and developing an ongoing storyline and recurring NPCs. All these things really kind of matured for us around that same time in the early and mid-'90s. And that during that time, we kind of took a break from the old games. We, we stopped playing Gamma World and Top Secret and D&D even for a while because we were so focused on like White Wolf and and Call of Cthulhu that those kind of became the priorities.
0: And this kind of ties in perfectly to one of the things you mentioned earlier. Does this kind of transition into more of a storytelling aspect in your life lead you to entertainment and media production stuff?
1: Well, it's funny. Um, I was one of those kids in high school who... You know you get towards the end of the high school and they they have you take all those different kind of tests and and little quizzes to find out what your interests are and then your counselor sits you down and says they basically narrow things down for you and they they're supposed to tell you here you know here are some things that you could explore for a career my counselor was you know he looks over the stuff and he goes well bill you're you're a pretty smart kid and you could do just about anything you want so good luck that was it that was that was the guidance. So <laughs> that was nice. Yeah, I'm like, thanks, dude. That that helped out a lot, you know. So I I went to college because that's what you're supposed to do. And then I continued in college, and you know, I got into my junior year of college, and I still didn't have a declared major. I didn't know what I was going to do, so I just majored in English because I always liked stories and writing and reading, and uh, I thought maybe I'll you know be an English teacher. Well, senior year of college as an English major, I was. Just failing, and I was failing because I didn't want to be an English teacher. I didn't want to just graduate from college and go become a teacher. So uh, I ended up having one film class my senior year, my first semester of my senior year of college. I failed every other class that I was taking that semester, mostly because I just didn't go, except that film class I got an A. And the reason why I think I did so well is because it reminded me of those experiences when I was a kid and a teenager where I was shooting videos with my friends and having fun. I just liked it. I liked the idea of telling stories through cinema. So I ended up dropping out of school, changing my major completely, going back into school. Fast forward three more years, and I graduate with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in Photo, Film, and Electronic Media. Um. I ended up working in the Chicago film industry for about three years full-time and a couple years after that uh, sporadically freelance. Um, Chicago's a big advertising town, so most of my bread and butter work was commercial work, music videos, uh, corporate stuff. I did work on um, a feature and a couple short films as well. So I had kind of a nice cross exposure in the world of film for a few years. But you know it's freelance, and uh, times were starting to get tough. So I changed directions and got into television, where um, I found you know very similar interests. But on the video and television side, I, I did a lot of studio production, uh, live multicam truck production, sports news, the whole whole enchilada, basically talk shows, that kind of stuff. So um, that was another great experience for a number of years. But like a lot of uh, career paths, the, the pay wasn't all that great. And my wife and I wanted to start a family, and I needed to make a little more bread. So I, you know, floundered for a while, wasn't sure what I'd do with my life. And then she suggested, hey, you know, why don't you go back to school to be a teacher? You know, your your dad was a teacher. You always talked about teaching someday. And I thought, ah, eh, you know. I don't want to do that I have to go back to college and I don't know how hard that would be I don't know if I could do it And basically I just made excuses until she kind of gave me a kick in the rear and was like told me about this orientation so I went it was free they evaluated your transcripts and lo and behold because I had originally majored in English and ended up with a minor in English I was only a couple classes short of being eligible to go to school and become an English teacher so I picked up a couple classes and working full time and taking night classes, uh, I I finished the program to get my certification. I did student teachings, and um, I was I was all geared up. I got my endorsement to teach English. So, unfortunately, it was middle of the school year and I couldn't find any jobs. So and and my wife was pregnant. So talk about a little pressure. Um,
0: I mean, you're weaving quite a tale so far. I'm absolutely riveted. I I love having. DMs, GMs, and, and as the ilk on these types of podcasts, because 90% of my job is just shutting up. <laughs> Keep going, please.
1: Well, it's, I tell people that, uh, you know, when you're facing dark times or times of doubt or worry, you know, if you if you really think about what it is that you want to achieve in your life... And, and you don't put up your own barriers to stop yourself. If you just really believe in it and you work on it, you, you can make your dreams come true. And it, but at the same time, I'm a realist. It's not easy. So, you know, I, I was struggling. I had this teaching endorsement and certificate. And I, all I was doing was subbing because there were no jobs open mid-year. And my wife was due, and, and, you know, so I had to get a job, and I I went back to restaurants. I had worked, you know, put myself through college working in restaurants. So I'm working at Red Lobster thinking to myself, man, you know, this is crazy. Like, I have multiple degrees, and here I am, a waiter at Red Lobster. And, And nothing will humble you more than bringing free Cheddar Bay biscuits to people, you know, by the basket load. Um you know while you're carrying a master's degree thinking about what you should be doing but anyway things happen for a reason and i heard through the grapevine that the guy who was running the tv program at my old high school was retiring so i made some phone calls and i talked to some people and then they're like come on in we'll give you a tour so i come on in they give me a tour they show me everything and a lot had changed since I went to high school. the The program had grown, and you know they had a different facility and stuff. And it was it's pretty impressive, you know. So at the end of the tour, I asked the the guy, the the boss at the time, "What are you looking for? You know, what what's who's your perfect candidate?" And they said, "Well, ideally, we're looking for somebody who has a." degree to teach English because the the class, the TV classes, are an elective under language arts. They're English electives. So I said, Bing, that's me. Then we're looking for somebody who has experience running a TV station and programming a cable channel. I said, Bing, that's me. Then we're looking for somebody who has experience managing uh, a studio. Bing, that's me. Uh, then we're looking for somebody who has experience, if possible, running a truck. And I thought, boom, that's me. I was in charge of two different trucks in my my Comcast days. So I, I just I looked at these things, and I, I looked at the guy, and I said, look, man, I'm, I'm pretty sure I might be the only guy in the state that has all those qualifications. So I apply, a bunch of interviews, a couple months later, I get the job, and I tell people to this day that I am lucky, fortunate, and blessed, depending on your particular belief system, but I'm I'm all three of those things, because basically I got the job teaching kids about media, which is what I did professionally, and I still get to do all this stuff. I'm like a coach who gets to suit up and still play the game, because I'm not just teaching them how to do this stuff. I'm out there with them on our live productions uh, in the studio or with our production truck. I'm out there shooting football games and basketball games and concerts with them. You know, whether I'm, And I float because I have to teach the kids how to do it sometimes while we're doing it. So it's all very hands-on. And it's, it's an amazing program. It's an amazing school because I'm the only person running the show. They entrust me with everything. So I get to develop the curriculum based on what I learned professionally so there's no book. I teach the kids all real practical, hands-on stuff. They learn everything from camera, lighting, sound, and editing. Uh, and they apply all those things hands-on with multiple projects and then productions, real live productions with our truck, with our studio. Uh, and then they edit all of it. They, they kind of get the whole thing. It's like a media boot camp. And um, it's been – I'm in my 13th year now, so – It's awesome. I work with great kids. I get to teach, which is my passion. But I also get to do everything that I loved with media still. So it's the best of all the
0: worlds. That is absolutely brilliant. And I mean, it's very inspiring to have a teacher like that. And and your students are fortunate to have you. It's funny that you're mentioning all this. Um, While it wasn't the path and profession I went into, I ended up doing finance. I was given the opportunity, I think, in seventh or eighth grade Cause we were given a grant for, uh, for creating like a, like a media TV audio production uh, department at our uh, school at the time. And I was one of the, the people who was part of that grant. And I learned uh, so much about just that whole thing. And it excited me and I didn't have a teacher that was half as impressive resume wise and as passionate as you were. So what ended up happening was like, I kind of kind of led that show and I'd skip a lot of lunches just to, like do production. Cause every week, We'd have to like uh, show like a short little episode every Monday of like, OK, here's what the, the kids have been up to over the week. And here's the, the thing they've created. And I've always wanted to push like the boundaries of like, well, what if we do comedy skits? What if we just don't talk about like this is coming up and this event is coming up? I'm like, what if we don't let's say like this is out currently? Here's, you know, a movie you can go see or like, here's a tip. If you have bad breath, eat apples. They're good for your breath. says a survey, like just small little tidbits like that. So I'd actually create two um, two shows. I create the show if the teacher was in on the Monday when we go live. And then I create the show I really wanted to do in case she wasn't or a sub was in. And then we broadcast that show. And uh, I've been called to the principal's office multiple times. And I will say it was still worth it looking back at it now.
1: Oh, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and, and, you know, this, this applies to – this will translate well, you know, as we segue into the role-playing thing and the live-streaming thing. But you you have to take risks. I uh, I – I – I will say that I, if we were talking about D&D statistics, I'm probably more intelligent than I am wise. I, I make a lot of dumb decisions. I'm not a perfect person. <laughs> like, all, all of us are flawed. But I will say that I have made some risks that were really smart and that really ended up being crucial and rewarding. And I don't regret them at all, even if I did get in trouble. Uh, I mean, here you know, here's just a random dumb one, but... You know, like four or five years ago, I had a group of students who were like, hey, Mr. Allen, Halloween is during the school week. What if we did like a Halloween dance party in the studio and we shot it and we live streamed it on the cable channel? And I was like, you guys, that's awesome. Let's do it. I, we just did it. We cleaned out the studio. We brought in our radio station and, and DJ and lights and we, t- we just blacked out everything. And we went to the lunchrooms, and anybody that was wearing a costume was invited and brought down to the studio. And at one point, I am certain that we exceeded the allowable amount by fire code. We probably had, like, 50 kids in a room designated for 25, and it was a rager. Like, they were just having a blast. And I got in trouble later, um, you know, from the school because I, I, I didn't clear it with anybody. I just did it, you know. I just did it. And, uh, and I, that was okay. I was willing to take the rap because I saw what an amazing experience it was for the kids. And, you know, I'm in education, uh, and I have been, and I'm a teacher, uh, but I have a kind of a unique perspective because I'm also an administrator. I'm part teacher, part administrator, and I see both sides. You know, as a teacher, I teach the classes. Uh, I develop the curriculum. As the administrator, I'm a 12-month employee, um, I'm, I'm here all year long because we have a TV station on actual cable and, you know, so I have some allowances that maybe a normal teacher wouldn't have. Um, I also don't get summers off, but anyway, but you know, I, I, I see this perspective and I think about what are we here for and when we're here for the kids and if being here for the kids means sometimes breaking the rules for the greater good of a unique experience or, Uh, making an opportunity for kids to learn hands-on from something amazing that they normally wouldn't be able to do. You know, you take risks. And and when I try to evaluate the risk, I try to think, you know, obviously I'm not going to do anything that's unsafe for the kids. But at the same time, I I push the envelope all the time because— in those moments, sometimes are the greatest learning opportunities. Just like you referenced, you know, when you would produce the show that you wanted to do instead of the boring daily announcements, you probably learned more doing those fun things than you do just rinse and repeat with the daily announcements, right? So that's it, man. I mean, you know that that kind of uh, that that's that's been the life, you know. It 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 and and I never really intermingled. The role-playing life with the video and teaching life uh, up until very recently
0: yeah and that's perfect segue. so now we're getting closer and closer to the thing that's melding this all together and getting towards kind of kind of the topic i really want to hit on so what is your first now exposure as as the years are going on to like seeing maybe a podcast or maybe a video or anything relating rpgs dnd whatever Out into the masses or on the internet, because for me it was Acquisitions Incorporated, seeing those first, uh, first hearing those uh, earliest Acquisitions Incorporated, then seeing those and being like, "Wow, RPGs and like you're filming and showing to other people." It's outside of you know the basement or the, whatever the den you're in.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, I all right. So the funny thing is, um, I guess in the modern era, my first exposure would have been D&D with Vin Diesel. Uh, it's where like Matt Mercer and a couple of the guys from Critical Role played D&D with Vin Diesel. And it was just a short segment. I mean, it was like, a I don't know, maybe a 10-minute segment of an adventure. It wasn't really that long. But I saw it. I saw the way that they did it. I analyzed it from kind of a video production perspective, and I thought, man, that's cool. I, I thought, how cool would it be to have a D&D game with, like some real production value, you know, like so a cool set and cool lighting and and you know whatever. I, and and I had not looked at anything on Twitch or YouTube related to gaming, but I, it, that that kind of turned it on initially. Uh, now I will say, I had friends who recommended acquisitions who watched it. I had friends who recommended. Uh, critical role and all that stuff. And then, so so kind of around the same time, I would check out those things. You know, people would send me links. I'd, I'd watch something here and there. Um, same thing with uh, Maze Arcana. Actually, um, I hit it with my axe because that, that was out in like 2008, 2009, like the early days of YouTube. Um, so I, I didn't catch it until way later. I mean, till probably 2016, 2017. But, you know, just seeing all these different ways, it, it, what it did was it flipped a switch. I started to think about what I liked in each of these things and what I didn't like. Um, I, I, I'll tell you that I don't like the standard Twitch format. This is what, what I call the standard Twitch format is when people set up two or three cameras and they're locked down on the same shots and they're all, you know, split up on a single screen embedded with a graphic overlay, you know, whether it's Critical Role or Maze Arcana or whatever, that it's that, what I call the Twitch look. I don't like it. Um, I'm not saying I don't like the content. I just don't like the look, okay? So there, there's a difference between the content and the video production, the look. I just don't like that Twitch look. Maybe it's because I'm not a Twitch guy or I'm old. I don't know. <laughs>
0: that's totally fair enough I mean uh, so this contents out there it's being created you've got a YouTube channel however at the time you're putting up stuff on YouTube and so what the onus of what was the onus of Bill Allen world
1: well a lot of people think it's because I'm an egotistical prick which you know maybe maybe <laughs> I mean I'm not gonna lie you know I uh, the reality of Bill Allen is that I'm I'm basically just uh uh you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd, but, you know, when I was growing up, man, I don't know about you, and, and but, but I think a lot of people my age, if you played D&D in the 80s, you were either a, just a nerd out in the open who people probably called a nerd and, you know, maybe you wore your shorts too high or shirts too tight. Like, I think like Napoleon Dynamite level of nerd. When I think of people who were like openly playing D&D in the 80s. Um, I was not that dude. Like I, I like my role playing was in the closet. Like it was like deep buried in the closet, like gay people buried things in the closet. You know what I mean? Like that level of buried in the closet, like I outside of my immediate circle of best friends who I played role playing games with, like nobody knew that I played role playing games. Nobody like girls didn't know. I would date girls in high school who had no idea that I had this other life in role playing games. So for me, that side of me, the role playing game start stuff was was just buried for such a formative part of my life. And it wasn't really until like the 90s and vampire and college where I felt like it was okay to let people know that like this is a thing that was important to me and this was a part of my life. I kind of came out of the closet, you know. Well, fast forward to, um, you know, when uh, I want to say maybe 2015 is when I started up the YouTube channel. It, it The reason why I started it up was because I kind of wanted one place to put all the things that I was interested in. And I, I have a lot of interests. So I, I wanted a place where I could put gaming stuff, but also links to, like, my music. Like, I've, I've grown up with music. I've played in bands all my life. And, I, I, you know, I have a band that, you know, it's not super active, but with a lot of content. You know, so music's a part of my life. Movies and TV shows and, and books are a part of my life and role-playing games. So Bill Allen World... Actually, truly was not born out of ego or narcissism. It was born out of just what do I call a place where I just dump all my crap? And all I could think of that wasn't already taken as a YouTube URL was Bill Allen World. And that's how it started.
0: So we're creating content now. We're putting it up on Bill Allen World. Obviously, RPGs are a huge part of your life, as is your job, as is working with students and helping them understand medium video production and things like that. How does D and D with high schoolers then happen? Like when do you just put the three together and go peanut butter and chocolate? Oh my God. (laughs)
1: Well, I'll tell you, it didn't happen right away. Uh, The initial content on the channel was unboxing videos. When I got into Dwarven Forge, I backed a Kickstarter for the city builder stuff. And when I got my stuff, I was one of the first people to get it. And I saw, you know, when you recognize like a moment an opportunity, I saw that opportunity and I was like, I'm the only person right now who has this stuff. So I'm going to make videos and I made videos really fast and I got them online. And it was like, everybody on the Kickstarter was tuning into those unboxing videos for my Dwarven Dwarven forge stuff because nobody had gotten theirs yet. And I was like the first guy doing close-up shots of the stuff as it comes out and building it. And that that kind of started it. And then spinning off from Dwarven Forge. Dwarven Forge is amazing game terrain, but it's really expensive. So I couldn't afford this anymore. And if I bought it anymore, my wife would have divorced me. So <laughs> I... Um... I started looking into Dwarven... I just started searching for do-it-yourself Dwarven Forge, and I found this whole community. It was small at the time, but now it's very big, of game terrain crafters, people who made their own terrain. And I was like, wow, this is it, man. This is what I got to do because I can't afford this Dwarven Forge stuff. I got to start making my own. Well, I had no experience with crafting. I'm not a really artistic guy, I, I mean, I'm artistic with tech, you know what I mean? Like film and television stuff, but not with hands-on 2D or 3D stuff. So, you know, my first few projects sucked, but I started learning and started just doing it and, and I got really into it. It was fun. It was practical because I would make terrain that I could then use on the table. Um, and, and that started to become a lot of my content was the crafting stuff, and then I started seeing other people kind of posting these DM tips, you know, like, like practical advice for DMs and players. And I, wow, I mean, it's, it's such a flooded area, but I figured, you know, I've been playing this game for almost 40 years. I might as well give some advice. I, I, I have a few things that I could talk about. So I posted some stuff up and some of it got some traction. Some of it didn't. Um, and that was it, you know, and, and I mean, my life's so busy uh, you know, my average work week is about 50 or 60 hours a week. Plus, I, you know, I got kids and they have activities and, you know, my wife and I are involved in different things. And, you know, so my channel content was not regular. It was, it was very sporadic. So then last semester, uh, this would have been December of 2017. Um, no, I'm sorry. I'm missing a very crucial part in this story. Let me rewind a second. Last summer, summer of 2017, um, I started working with my friend Brian Thomas, who is the owner of Initiative Coffee Company, on a concept to turn his game world into a recurring actual gameplay series. So we started producing a few episodes of, which ended up actually being the final episodes of his campaign that he'd been running for five years and it was great it was it was fun for me to do in the studio with some of the kids but it wasn't my material it was just us producing the video for Brian and his friends then Brian started working on developing the bard's tale and you know we learned from the experience of doing the emerald blades so we knew how to add some more production value and and Some of my kids got involved with the Bard's Tale and setting up the studio and lighting for that. So that was, you know, it was, again, kind of a cool thing, but it wasn't really me and my content. It was more us working with Brian on the Bard's Tale. Last August, uh, we got a call from my contact at Blackmagic Design, and he asked if we would be interested in working crew for a production that they had in Indiana. And I was like, well, what is it? And he's the guy's name is Terry. And Terry was like, it's uh, it's basically a live stream of a game at uh, Gen Con. He, that's how he said it. And I was like, oh, my God, Terry, Gen Con, like the biggest gaming convention in the country? He's like, yeah, I think that's it. I was like, he's like, do you know it? I'm like, dude, I have a Dungeons & Dragons logo tattooed on my arm. I know what Gen Con is. So long story short, I I put everything into the works right away. Uh, I got approval for the administration and uh, me and a couple of the kids and uh, my lead production tech, Dave Carafa, ended up going to Gen Con and working on the video crew for Maze Arcana's live stream at Gen Con. And then that turned into, like, we just kind of became the media crew. So we ended up spending the whole weekend with Satine and Rudy and all these other people from the gaming industry at Gen Con. And we went to the uh, Geek and Sundry after party and ended up like taking over there and did, doing the, the meet and greet thing. Um, so that that kind of cemented the the interest in creating content that was gaming related, because now I was seeing like what all these other people were doing with this. And it was just crazy. Like, whether it was the Maze Arcana people or the Critical Role people, like it was I, I had never been to Gen Con in my entire life of gaming. Gen Con 50 last year was my first Gen Con. And it was a rager. It was just absolutely amazing. So that that just kind of wet my appetite even more. Um, so back to the students. We had um, a group of advanced students who weren't sure what they were gonna do for their final class project and i give them a lot of leeway they could produce a program they could produce a short film a documentary i'm, I'm very open you know and i i, I listen to their proposals I, I help them work on something and then develop it and then they produce something right they couldn't come up with anything so one day they, they go in the studio to kind of have a brainstorming session and they see the, the gaming table from the bard's Tale set up and and some of the terrain and minis on the table and i hear them like in there and i go in there and i'm like what are you guys doing i'm like don't touch any of that it's set up for the show and they're like mr allen for our final project could we do a dungeons and dragons game and those words kind of like hung in my my brain for a minute and i was like thinking to myself i'm like well could we would there be curricular value in doing that or is it just a cop out and an excuse and i said well listen what do you what do you have in mind? So we started to talk about it, and as we talked about it, I realized that it could absolutely happen and it could be a really cool experience for them to have to set up the studio to have to figure out a lighting design and camera placement and and sound and how to do miking for six people you know live and and it it just became this thing so. Um, they ended up putting it together and that was season one of d d with high school students. And, and we didn't have a catchy name and we didn't have time for a catchy name because literally time was running out. And, you know, it's funny because I look at the, the amount of comments on the videos and there are so many like, you know, little what I'll call like the rules lawyering things where people are like, actually, you know, flanking doesn't work that way. Or like her spell should have done more damage or they should have gotten, a pro-, you know, like little things like that that to me mean nothing because people are missing the big picture. And the big picture is that I sat down with a group of kids who'd never played DD, taught them how to play DD, made characters with them, and then played through an adventure um, with no prep. I mean, this happened literally like two weeks before final exams and the end of the semester. So we had no time because while I was developing all that stuff, they were coming up with how the set was going to look and how to light it and all this, this other kind of tech stuff. And then it all had to be edited. They had to add graphics in. They had to export it, get it online, all that stuff. So it ended up being this weird little experimental thing that they did as their final project that was really successful. They had a blast. They had fun doing it. And then it ended up being a really great opportunity for them to learn something new and different from a a tech perspective.
0: And it also caught on. I mean, it got quite a following going and You guys can go watch the videos yourself. I think it's fantastic uh, what they were able to accomplish with what you now mentioned is such a short amount of time. And as that's happening, though, like now you're encountering, like you mentioned what I call like the Monday morning DMs uh, thing about like, well, when you go to a comment section of a YouTube video, the vast majority of people who like your content will not comment that they like your content. The only people who will comment, it seems, are the people who have problems or bones to pick with you. So what other sort of things were you discovering like once and your students were discovering once this content was put up online, how people were receiving it and the challenges that come with?
1: Well, you know what? I I try to frame it from a teachable moment perspective. So as a teacher, one of the goals is with everything that we do here, we look back at what we did. So I have a process of screening and critiques with any project that I have my kids do music video, commercial documentary, short film. TV show, even for our live productions. You know, you can't go back and fix a live multicam football game. It's live. So, it's done. But you can review what you did. You could talk about what you did well. You could talk about how that worked. You could talk about what you didn't do as well and what you learned from that and how to do it better next time. So, from the D&D show, I, I would have these sessions where I'd sit down with them and I even recorded some of them. I never posted them online because they weren't really for public consumption. They were for the kids to learn, learn from their successes, and learn from their mistakes and grow from that. So I found that the the comments were interesting. How the kids took them. Um, we talked about some media literacy things. You know, in other words, like how to how to kind of take feedback with a grain of salt. You know, you can't make everyone happy. But what can we do to improve? What can we consider to make things better? Um, what do we need to just straight up ignore? You know, the personal things that don't really address the production or don't really address anything, you know, y- y- you got to develop some thick skin. What I found is that, you know, YouTube is a platform that these kids, this generation, um, it's so ingrained in, in their life. And I thought that it was a valuable lesson when we did this uh, show for them to learn about looking past just, you know, a cat video or a stupid, you know, wipeout video, a fails video that has 3 million views. And look not at the views and not just at basic popularity, but really look at the production value. Look at what you could do to make something better than just some stupid video that's going to fade away in a month, you know. And I think the looking at the long view of production can be hard for kids in their generation because they they've grown up in a digital world where things change so fast. So getting them to commit to a long-term vision wasn't easy. Um, so then fast forward past winter break, second semester starts, and I've got another group of advanced kids who want to be involved and want to do another season. And I, I I tell them, I go, you guys, it's a lot of work. I mean, I'd, of course, yes, I'd love to play D&D with you guys, but it's going to be more than that. You're going to have to put in time. You're going to have to, you know, I want you guys to produce content for this. It's not just a chance to play D&D in class, you know. So they, they, they were ready for that. They were ready to commit to it. So, um, you know, so then season two is born, and we have – you know now the kids are taking more ownership over it, and they're they're making they're producing behind the scenes videos. They're working on um, like Anna, uh, who's part of the season two cast. She's uh, doing character sketches for NPCs. Uh, she's working on an animated intro uh, for the for the show, and uh, Sean's producing you know content as well. Heather, Carl, you know Matt. They're they're all kind of getting more into it. And then there's a whole bunch of kids who you don't see in front of the camera who are behind the scenes that are working on the live studio production or documenting behind the scenes, you know, material that that we're working on to to continue providing more material for the show. So, you know, the reality is that if I were just some guy who was like, I'm going to tape my 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 regular gaming group and, you know, put it online, I don't I don't know if I could pull that commitment level off. I, in fact, I could safely say that I wouldn't be able to do it, but because I've got this team of kids who wants to do this um, and, and make no mistake, this is com- completely their choice. You know, there've been been some kind of troll comments where it's like, you know, Oh, this is, this is Bill Allen, you know, using his kids and exploiting them. It, it, that's the furthest thing from the truth. Like I, I produce, uh, you know, like I said, Brian's games with Initiative Coffee Company. I'm not getting paid for any of that. That's not my job. I do it because I love it. I do it because I'm supporting the game. I do it because those are friends, you know. And in the same way, the D and D with high school students thing is, it's fun for the kids to be able to do something that's different from what we normally do. You know, people that don't know the rest of the background that I've just articulated with you over the last 45 minutes. They might not know that these students aren't just sitting around playing D&D once a week. We have uh, 200 productions a year. And at least 100 of those are live truck shoots, live multicam truck productions. Uh, we do almost all the boys and girl varsity sports home games. We do some away games. We do the entire fine arts calendar. Every choir concert, orchestra, jazz band, band. Um, Our school has a dance program. We do all the assemblies. So, I mean, we're we're constantly doing productions. And that's just the live productions. That doesn't include the five projects per semester that every kid in my class is doing. Short films, cinematography reels, commercials, music videos, documentaries. I, I mean... So we're constantly doing stuff. So doing D D with high school students is an over and above what we do, um, and it takes quite about uh, quite an amount of commitment from the kids on the cast and the crew, you know. So, but it's great. It's a learning opportunity, and it, it kind of goes back to what you and I were saying about sometimes the best way to learn is by doing something fun that you enjoy. That's that's breaking the rules or you know, pushing the envelope. In our case, it's not breaking the rules. Um, It's no different. Doing D&D with high school students is no different than if we did a talk show with high school students. It's well within the rules. There's, you know, it's absolutely within the rules. But I think what's cool about it is that it's different. It's different from just a student-hosted talk show where they talk about sports or they talk about movies. You know, I mean, anybody with a public access studio could do that. But I think what's cool is that they're they're learning role playing games. And as you and I both know, and probably most of your audience knows, there is so much value in role playing games. So much educational value, right?
0: Absolutely, definitely. And I've, you know, had podcasts before and the reason I, I pick a podcast is that I have a strong theme that I think can obviously last for many, many episodes, but also brings something to people that either connects us or binds us or allows us to learn about the human experience. So I've been fortunate and I've not been playing RPGs as long as you not even close, my friend. You know, I'm I'm coming closer to five, whereas you've got me trounced. But in those five, I've discovered so much about myself, so much about people, so much about patience, so much about listening. So much about, you know, sometimes compromise or working with somebody, kind of collaboration, like so many lessons I've picked up from this. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely a a blessing just to have people come to my table. I always ask them. um, No, sorry, I don't always ask them. I always tell them, thank you for coming to the table at the end of the session. And I I always talk about how blessed I am that they're willing to give me, you know, three hours of their time at Plus Transit to see me, you know, once a week and do these games. So, uh, yeah, I definitely agree with you to that.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it, you know, here we live in a world of screens and I, it's funny because, you know, at our high school, I i have more technology around me than anybody, obviously. I mean, I have a, I have a lab for editing. I have screens everywhere where, you know, cameras everywhere. That's what I do. But it's funny because I don't have cable TV at home. Like I don't, <laughs> I don't, uh, I avoid television. I avoid screens when I'm not here because I need a break. I think we all do. I think we live in a world that's very digital and very screen-oriented. And I think all humans need human connection. We need to sit around a table, whether it's playing a role-playing role, role playing game or not, but we need fellowship with other humans. We need this in our lives. and And I think a lot of people are tuning into that reality, but there are still a lot of people that don't get it. And I think... Role-playing games allow you to be with other people face-to-face and to be creative and to share insights into the world that you may have and to learn from your, your fellow players, to, to basically have theoretical test runs of different things and challenges to use your mind creatively and for problem-solving. Um, role-playing games are R O L E. Their roles—it's acting, it's improv—it it challenges our brains to to so many things. Um, role-playing games draw in knowledge that we get from reading, from movies, from TV shows. We we create together. We write. We we read. Um, role-playing games stimulated my love of history and of, of religion. Like I I independently sought out knowledge about all sorts of world religions and cultures because of role-playing games. I independently sought out literature and stories, uh, both nonfiction, historical, and fictional, because of role-playing games. And, and and even art. Art can be drawn into role-playing games. People people love to create art to you know drawing and painting and, and even terrain crafting, making terrain for your minis is art. That's, that's another beautiful thing. So there are so, so many valuable things that we can get. Um, a colleague of mine who is the director of student activities, his name's Peter Geddes, great guy, I consider him a, a colleague and a friend, also grew up playing role-playing games, played D&D back in the day. And I asked him one time, what, what do you get out of role-playing games? And he mentioned something that I didn't even realize, which is so many people need confidence so many people need just to know that they can make decisions even if it's in a fanciful world that they can make decisions and be a winner they could be something you know cuz a lot of people in the world i feel like you know they're they're surrounded by sadness and darkness and and myself included you know i've i've struggled with depression and and anxiety and stuff and and you know role playing games give us a magical escape a magical escape where we could be heroes and we could do things that we can't maybe do in the normal world, and it gives us that little bit of confidence that maybe because our character could do that thing, that maybe we could do something that we couldn't normally believe ourselves capable of doing in the real world. And I think that was such a profound realization too, because it applies to me and it applies to so many people that I know. You know, um, and and just from the social aspects the the cognitive and intellectual aspects. You know, they're every different kind of gamer in the world. We're all different. You know, some some people like number crunching and they love the math and they love the the statistics side. Some people like the role-playing side and the acting side more. But whatever it is that draws you to RPGs, I think it's great because you're interacting with people, you're sharing your passion, your love, and if you've got good chemistry at your table and everybody's kind of in the same vibe or the same playing mode it can be just the most amazing thing ever and and better than any drugs or alcohol and a whole heck of a lot safer and cheaper i might say you know
0: definitely and you know you're benefiting so much now from obviously having played rpgs for such a long time now and now the next step of that is obviously your channel kind of taking off with these videos that you're creating i just want to know um what are some of the changes you're seeing in either the reaction to your content or the way you make your content and also now you're getting to go out and about and to conventions and stuff like that and meeting people tied to this what how, How's this all coming into you? Man,
1: it's been a blessing, I'll tell you a real blessing. Um, I, I you know I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I, I don't monetize any of the content on my YouTube channel. And and people are like, Why you know, why not? Well, it's I don't have anything wrong with anyone monetizing stuff. But I never made Bill Allen World to be a revenue stream and I won't. Uh, I, I made it, like I said in the beginning, to just have a place to put all the stuff that I'm interested in. Um and there were some comments from D and D with high school students season one about, you know, monetizing and, and and then somebody was like, well, how about Patreon? And, and even the kids, some of the students were like, couldn't we monetize this? And I, I really thought on it. And uh, it occurred to me that the school has a way for people to donate to clubs. So I thought, you know what? It, forget Patreon. Forget, you know, monetizing the videos. I don't want my channel to be about that, but I figured we'll set it up. So we set up a a link and people can, can donate directly to the club. The money goes into the kids TV club account. The school doesn't absorb it. It doesn't, you know, go into a general revenue account. It goes directly into the club account and the kids then are empowered to use that they could reinvest it in the program. They could buy equipment with it and they have done that over the years, uh, they could participate in festivals, you know, film festivals. They could pay for the entries that um, conferences they can attend. Cool things like that, or field trips to to production companies or TV studios. It, it's just a, a great way, so that if people do want to financially support it, they can, you know. And 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 that to me was the the best solution because I never wanted my channel to be about money, and you know, just from an ethics point too. I don't want anybody to ever think that I'm making D&D with high school students out of some like selfish thing, like I'm I'm you know profiting off of the kids because that's not at all it's literally not happening. I'm not profiting. I don't I don't get a dime of money. Um now that said, the the growth of my channel has been a cool thing because it has connected to and, and resonated with a lot of people, so uh, I started working with Brian Thomas, uh, my my friend from Initiative Coffee, on our own convention, and we we launched our own convention in the first weekend in February, and it the the goal for this was if we could get thirty or forty nerds together and just have fun, that would be awesome, like. We'll have the space, we'll run some games, we'll run some anime and, and fantasy films, we'll have a cosplay contest, we'll have video games, and we'll just have fun. That was the bar. That was, how, that was how low the bar was. We had over 200 people. We had 11 vendors. We had panels every hour of each of the two days. We had a cosplay contest with cash prizes. We had professional judges. We had Rebel Force Radio and other special guests from the 501st Legion for all the Star Wars fans. It blew up. It was incredible. It was awesome. There were kids and families. There were high school kids, college kids, adults. We had Adventurers League, uh, and, and, and we're going to have it again next year. So, I mean, that, that started with this year, you know, and, and not just with the d with high school students, but with the growth of the YouTube channel and with the collaboration between me and, and Brian from Initiative Coffee. So all of that stuff has just grown from one thing to the next. Mm-hmm. And then GaryCon. I knew that this year was GaryCon 10, and I wanted to be able to, to participate in GaryCon 10. Um, so I put in. I, I, I applied to DM some games. And I thought it'd be a great way for me to to run some games in my uh, original world setting that I've been working on since 1998. Um, Coincidentally, that's also the same setting where uh, the D&D with high school students program uh, is, is taking place. So yeah, it's been a great way to kind of combine all those interests.
0: So with everything you've learned from everything that's kind of come together, if let's say, Listening now to this podcast and vast majority of games of course aren't live streamed or produced or put up, but let's say somebody who has an inkling or a temptation to do that, what are some words of wisdom or some maybe thoughts you want to give to them?
1: Well, it's funny because I I think my channel, like I said earlier, it you know without focus, you're if you just put a bunch of random stuff on your channel and it's sporadic, you're not gonna draw an audience. So I have to think about like what you know I think before anybody makes a channel, just ask yourself like, why are you making a channel? What are you going to offer YouTube or the internet world that isn't already out there in spades? You know what I mean? Like, what are you going to offer that isn't already, you know, pushing the envelope and, and you know, that isn't already in existence. Um, and to be honest with you, I didn't plan it this way, but all I'm offering is me. I'm offering Bill Allen. That's it, because everything else on my channel's already been done. You know, every there are a million channels that give DMs tips about how to run their games or how to make worlds or you know whatever. There are a, a ton of channels for crafting terrain, and there are a ton of channels for unboxing game-related stuff. So all the other content on my channel is redundant. Like everybody's already doing that stuff. What makes my channel different is is literally me. And I don't mean that in an egotistical or narcissistic way. It's just the fact that I've been doing this for a long time. I feel like I have a unique perspective on it. Um, You know, I I consider myself a master DM or a master GM. I I, I know what I'm doing. Um, I have fun with it. And, you know, the kids are having fun with it too. And I think that niche was was not out there. There really wasn't anything like D&D with high school students. At least not that has been turned into a series. There might have been some one-off, you know, YouTube videos posted, but nothing really continuous and certainly nothing with our production value, which leads me to the next thing from the from the tech side. You know, what are you going to do before you even launch this if you're going to do an actual play or a live streaming thing? How are you going to do it? Do you have the right equipment? You know, do your research because I I feel like a lot of people buy a bunch of stuff based on, you know, someone's post on Reddit or on a YouTube video that says, like, here's what you need to start off your own live cast. And they spend a lot of money and then those things don't work or they don't work as well as you want them to. Um, And maybe you don't need to spend a lot of money. I mean, you know, here's a prime example. A lot of of the best channels are using like a webcam, and they're just a person talking at a webcam. So is the content compelling? If your content's compelling, people will overlook the tech. They'll overlook, you know, some of the technology until you have some more money to reinvest in it. If you're gonna have fun doing this and you're gonna commit to doing something once a week, then I say go for it. But if if if, you know, it's a, a real stretch for you to do that or if you can't sit down and put out a document with a list of 50 topics to carry you through on a week-by-week basis, if you're struggling to think of topics to talk about, then, you know, I don't know. Maybe maybe it's not your, your cup of tea.
0: Couldn't have said it any better than myself. Bill, if people out there want to contact you, what's the best avenue?
1: Uh, I think the YouTube channel – and uh, the Facebook page—they're um, both uh, Bill Allen World. Uh, I'm also on Twitter at the Bill Allen. Uh, I think I, you know that—that's probably the best way to get a hold of me. I, I check—I try to check all the social media on a daily basis. Um, and i you know—as we're growing here, it, it becomes a challenge. So I always tell people: please remember that you know my YouTube channel and social media are not my full-time job. I do my best to follow up with people. And, you know, at the same time, though, if if people have questions, I I love addressing questions because I feel like whether it's tech stuff or, you know, gaming stuff, in the back of my mind, people ask me questions. And I always think, how can I help this person um, not make a foolish mistake, you know, not make a a failed wisdom save, uh, because I don't, I, I think it's a tragedy when people spend money on things that they don't need to spend money on, if I could help them out. So, you know, if you're, if you're considering starting off um, in the world of tech, I, I have packages of equipment at different price levels that I recommend for people, you know, from a, from a consulting perspective. So if you're looking at cameras and lighting and microphones and stuff like that, uh, you know, feel free to, to post a comment or send me a message, tweet at me, whatever it, it is. And, uh, you know, I'd be happy to do a little legwork for you and share my insights because, like I said, it, you know, if you're just starting out, you don't need to spend a boatload of money. You, you could start off with a – literally a, most cell phones are, are decent enough or basic webcams are decent enough when you're first starting out. And, and if your content is good – people will follow and then in turn, you know, maybe you'll get that financial support, whether it's monetizing your videos or a Patreon. If your content is quality and you're drawing the crowd, then you could start to build your tech. But, you know, I I often tell people, don't rush into buying a bunch of tech until you've got your stuff going.
0: Fantastic. And for those of you who want to contact me, the Twitter is at classy underscore Don, that's D-O-N for Don, the gmail is myrpgpodcast at gmail.com and of course the podbean link is myrpgpodcast.podbean.com and yes i got your comments i'm working on getting us on itunes as well well thank you very much for listening and i will see you at the table